Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 41. We're in this long, continuous narrative that tells the story of Jesus' arrest and trial and his crucifixion. And at this point in the story, Jesus has been arrested and he's been taken to the estate of the Jewish high priest where members of the Jewish ruling council were waiting. There he had been interrogated. We saw this at the end of chapter 14. Uh, He had been interrogated during the night. And once the charge, because they were bringing all sorts of charges against him, they had all sorts of false witnesses testifying against him. Mark tells us that they didn't agree with each other. But once the charge focused on Jesus's identity as Messiah, it's at that point that Jesus spoke and affirmed that indeed that's who he was. Well, that led the Jewish council to agree that he had blasphemed and therefore deserved to die. And then they mocked him. They treated him with contempt. Well, now at this point in Mark 15, the night is over and they proceed with the next step in their plan to eliminate Jesus the Messiah. So we pick up in Mark 15 verse 1 and it says this, early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, scribes, and the entire council of the Jews. And so the night has come to an end. It's sometime early in the morning. And here we have the Jewish ruling body, the elders, scribes, the entire council. They immediately held a consultation and they bound Jesus and led him away and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate is Pontius Pilate, and he was the Roman governor over the political region of Judea from AD 26 to 36. And the seat of the Roman government in Judea was actually the city of Caesarea, about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem up on the coast. Uh, You can hear the name Caesar in it. It was built in honor of Caesar, and it was the Roman political headquarters for the region. But Pilate and a contingent of soldiers would come to Jerusalem at special times of the year, such as Passover, particularly around Passover and Pentecost, when thousands of Jews would flock to the city of Jerusalem for the celebration. And so the soldiers, along with Pilate, would come to Jerusalem to help maintain peace and order. And under Roman rule, the Romans held the right of capital punishment, and they had officially taken that right away from the Jews. And so if the Jewish ruling body wants to eliminate Jesus and think he deserves to die, well, taking Jesus to Pilate is the necessary next legal step. And so that's what they do. Uh, They bring Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. We now have Jesus before Pilate in verse 2, and Pilate questioned Jesus, saying, So, you're the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. Notice that Pilate states the charge as Jesus being the king of the Jews, that is the Messiah, which suggests then that that's what the Jewish ruling council, when they brought Jesus to him, they had to give some reason they were bringing him, some charge against him. Well, this is the specific charge that they stated. He claims to be the king of the Jews. He claims to be the Messiah. Now, for the Jewish ruling body, it makes sense why they would be concerned about that. But why would Pilate care about that charge? Well, there are really two reasons. One, peace and order. Uh, Messianic revolutionaries in first century Judea were well known, and they were well known for gathering people around them and stirring up all sorts of trouble, stirring up revolts. 
pilot would want to make sure that didn't happen. In fact, that's the whole reason he's in the city for Passover. So if you have a messianic type revolutionary in Jerusalem at Passover celebrating a liberation festival, well, peace and order is a real issue. And so that's one reason Pilate would care about this charge. The other reason really has to do with loyalty to the emperor, loyalty to the empire versus disloyalty or treason. And so Pilate really does care about this charge. And so he asked Jesus, so you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus' answer is, it's as you say. And his answer is actually a bit ambiguous. Now, literally, what Jesus says is, you say it, which could be a form of agreement, or it could be a way of being dismissive. But we know that Jesus believes he's the Messiah, right? He, he's called himself that throughout Mark's gospel. But just in the trial before the Jewish ruling body, he was perfectly clear with them about his identity. In fact, he actually went on to quote from some Old Testament texts to support that. And so it's not in question whether or not Jesus is the king of the Jews or not. So why is he a little bit more ambiguous here in his conversation with Pilate? Well, my suspicion is that the reason he's a little bit more ambiguous is because Jesus knows that while it's true that he is the king of the Jews, it doesn't mean what Pilate would think it means. And so it doesn't mean that uh, Jesus is a political revolutionary, as Pilate would assume. And so he's uh, kind of weighing in with a little bit of caution, um, maybe even showing a little bit more deference to at least hint at the fact that though he is the king of the Jews, he's not the kind of king of the Jews that the Jews themselves expected and that the Romans themselves feared. And so he says, you say it. Now, Verse 3 then continues with the picture before Pilate and the chief priests joining in, stating their problems with Jesus. And so verse 3 says, the chief priests started accusing him of many things. And so in addition to this central charge, they throw out other, other accusations against Jesus that they think are problematic and they think Pilate would care about. But, verse 4, Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you offer nothing in answer? See how many charges they're bringing against you. So the picture is Jesus before Pilate, the chief priest serving as prosecuting attorneys, basically issuing their charges against Jesus before Pilate and Jesus sitting there silent in the face of all these charges. And Pilate's a little kind of confused by that, perplexed by that. Do you see how many charges they have against you? Aren't you going to say anything in your defense? But Jesus, verse 5, said nothing further in answer, so Pilate was amazed. And again, it's because Jesus is in control of himself, and the only charge that really matters, the, the real charge he knows that which is the heart of the issue, is the charge about his identity. So when that's the topic, he'll speak about it, and he'll affirm that indeed he is the Messiah. But when all these other kind of extra charges are just thrown in, Jesus is like, whatever. And he doesn't say anything. Verse 6, now at the Passover feast, he, that he there is Pilate, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. So Pilate had this little custom at the Passover feast. If there was a prisoner that the Jewish leaders requested from him, he would do them a little favor and release this one. 
So Mark tips us off to that to help us understand what happens and what follows. Verse 7, and the one named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. And the crowd went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Here's the irony. Uh, Pilate is worried about Jesus being a messianic revolutionary because that's what he's been accused of. But Barabbas is actually the very kind of person that Pilate should be worried about. He's a political revolutionary. He'd been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. We don't know exactly which revolt this was and which group of rebels this was, but this was the kind of thing that Pilate and the soldiers would come to Jerusalem to prevent during Passover. It's the kind of thing that some sort of messianic revolutionary uh, would need to be done away with because of this. And so Barabbas is ironically the very kind of person that Pilate should be worried about. And the crowd of Jews is asking Pilate to release Barabbas for them. Pilate, verse 9, answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? If Jesus is your king, and he seems harmless as far as Pilate can tell, he doesn't seem like the revolutionary type, Pilate said, how about I release him instead? For, verse 10, he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate, he's political enough, he's astute enough, he realizes... I don't think there's a problem really here with Jesus. I think there's some other motive, envy. And so he he's actually toying with them. Notice he even calls Jesus the king of the Jews. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's toying with them, calling Jesus that just to annoy them. But, verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd. We don't know who's all in this crowd. We know there's the chief priests, there's the scribes, there's members of the ruling council. So that's part of the crowd. Maybe since it's early in the morning, maybe there's a crowd of Jews that have kind of gathered around to see what's going on. I'm not totally sure, but the chief priests have stirred up whatever crowd of people there are there to ask Pilate to release Barabbas for them instead. And so, again, there's a bit of an irony here. They ask for Barabbas, a known insurrectionist, over Jesus, which actually just proves the hypocrisy of their charges. And Pilate knows that he can see it, but whatever, right? And so, verse 12, responding again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? Right? You're the one that came and said, this is the charge against him. He claims to be the king of the Jews. And so what should I do with him? And they shouted back, crucify him. And so the situation here escalates. Perhaps they could sense that Pilate was about to give in. And so now they they don't just call out the charges, but they also call out the desired punishment, crucifixion. And crucifixion was a punishment that the Romans used for the worst kind of criminals. And they used it in places on the outskirts of empire, like here in Judea, 1,400 miles from Rome. They use it in this place uh, on the worst kind of criminals as a vicious and brutal public execution to both humiliate and eliminate the person who committed whatever crime, but also to terrorize the local populace. It was a way of saying to anybody else who would see this, because they always crucified people in a public area, to anyone uh, who would see it, 
Basically, this would say, look what happens when you cross our Roman authority. That's what crucifixion was. And that's what the crowd of Jews here uh, shout back to Pilate. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Pilate, verse 14, said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted louder and all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Well, in an effort to keep the peace, because that's really his primary goal here, verse 15 says, intent on satisfying the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And so he gave them the, the known insurrectionist, the known revolutionary, the known murderer. Pilate handed him over to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And so he, he releases Barabbas from prison and he has Jesus flogged. And flogged means whipped, whipped with a, a multi-strand whip, a short little whip that's got multi-strands of leather. And typically a Roman whip like this would have like lead balls uh, tied into the leather or uh, glass shards tied into the leather. Uh, there's, they found some with like knuckle bones tied into the, the leather strands so that when a person was whipped, it would do maximum damage on their back. Not just the leather strands, but lead balls or glass shards just to... Uh, pummel and rip open the the flesh of the back and there's actually reports of people being beaten this by flogging who actually died from the trauma and the blood loss of the flogging it's it's no kind of minor uh whipping right so he orders jesus to be flogged and then he hands him over to be crucified Verse 16 then says this. Now, the soldiers took him, Jesus, away into the palace. So they were out kind of in the public gathering place uh, where a Pilate would hear a case. Now they're going to take him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And so where it says the palace, that is the praetorium, we're talking about a Pilate's residence, Pilate's palace dwelling here in uh, Jerusalem. And the cohort is the on-duty Roman garrison in Jerusalem for Passover. So we've shifted now from the Jewish authorities to the Roman governor and the Roman military. Verse 17 continues, and they dressed him in purple to mock him. Purple is the color of royalty. He's being executed because he's the king of the Jews, right? And so they dressed him in purple, and then they twisted together a crown made out of a thorn bush, and they pressed it down on his head, and they began saluting him. Hail, king of the Jews! And so they're mocking him as the king um, because of his supposed royalty. But look how weak and helpless he actually is. And so all of this is intended as a mockery of his supposed royalty. Their mockery continues, and like schoolboys, they mercilessly taunt uh, Jesus. Verse 19, they repeatedly beat him on the head with a reed and spit on him, kneeling before him. They bowed down before him. All of this, again, focuses on the charge that Jesus is a king. And so there he is in a royal robe with this uh, painful crown on his scalp. They're beating him with a reed, like, like his reed staff as a king. Right now they take it and they beat him. And that's the uh, picture there. They spit on him. They kneel before him in mockery, uh, all to taunt and mock him. 
Well, verse 20, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and they put his own garments back onto him and they led him out to crucify him. And so they lead him through the city to the public place of crucifixion just outside the city where everyone coming into the city for uh, the Passover celebration would see him. And Jesus, being weak from the beatings, exhausted from being up all night, he needs help carrying uh, the cross piece of his cross. So, verse 21, they're leading him through the city, and they compelled a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Just to clarify, when it says carry his cross, the upright portion of the cross remained out at the place of crucifixion. Um, and the piece we're talking about here is the cross piece that would uh, his arms would eventually be attached to. So that's what Jesus is carrying, is that cross piece that... Uh, probably maybe even his hands tied to it as it rests on his shoulders and he's walking through the city of Jerusalem out to the place of crucifixion. And it seems then that Jesus started out carrying this cross piece but couldn't continue. So the Romans conscripted Simon to finish carrying it. And Simon is the father, notice in verse 21, of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, and the way Mark writes this as a little parenthetical note seems to suggest that these two were known to the original audience, that uh, Alexander and Rufus were known to the Roman Christians to whom the book of Mark was originally written. Interestingly enough, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans 16, 13, Paul mentions a Rufus who's part of the church in Rome. Maybe the same Rufus that uh, we have mentioned here. Not totally sure, but... Uh, presumably Rufus and Alexander are, are known to the Roman Christians. And so Alexander Rufus' dad, Simon, first met Jesus, it seems, here on the road to the crucifixion when uh, Simon was conscripted to carry the cross piece. Well, they made their way through the city and then uh, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the school. This is the public place of crucifixion uh, near Jerusalem. And we don't actually know the exact location. There are a couple traditional locations uh, near Jerusalem that uh, people you know, have had traditional kind of uh, options attached to them, but we're not sure actually the exact place. What we do know is it was outside the city walls, but it was along a public road and it was well known. And so they brought Jesus to that place. They tried to give him some wine mixed with myrrh, sort of as a weak sedative. He didn't take it. And verse 24, they crucified him. And the brevity of that always strikes me, just says they crucified him. No need for more, no details, right? Don't need to amplify it. They crucified him because the original readers knew. They could picture it. When they heard that phrase, they crucified him. They could hear the groans, then the shrieks and the pain of a crucifixion victim. They could see what it looked like because the Romans' practice was to crucify people at the most public, visible place they could. And so the original readers knew exactly what happened at a crucifixion, what it looked like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like. And so the writers of the Gospels, here Mark, could simply say they crucified him. 
and he would know that the original readers knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, Mark goes on, they crucified him and divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. During crucifixion, the victim was stripped naked. That was just a way to add to the public shame, disgrace, and humiliation of the event. And so here's Jesus on the cross, stripped naked, hanging there, and the soldiers play games. They roll dice, basically, to see who gets which piece of his clothing. So here's Jesus in agony, suffering and dying, and they're playing games for his clothes, which just speaks of how trivial and callous human beings can be. Now, it was the third hour when they crucified him, Mark notes, verse 25. That means 9 a.m. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And so the Romans had this custom of putting a little note above the head of the crucifixion victim that would tell why they're being killed. Again, this is all very public. This is a way of not only getting rid of this particular criminal, but reminding the populace, don't mess with the Roman authority. And so the charge stated against Jesus is the king of the Jews. And from the trial right down through this point, Jesus' kingship has been the focus. The record of history shows that Jesus was killed not for anything else other than for being the king of the Jews. And so here now is his royal placard posted as the criminal charge for his execution. Verse 27 continues, And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke includes more details about these two, but Mark simply mentions them here. He wasn't the only one to die that morning. These two men were also crucified with him. Verse 29, since this was a public place, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. Uh, but that's the whole irony, isn't it? That's the whole point. In order to save others, he can't save himself. But they don't get that. They just see him hanging there. They recall statements uh, that he made about rebuilding the temple. And we've talked about that in a previous recording where uh, in the Gospel of John, that's noted that specifically about the temple of his body. And so his death was part of tearing down the temple of his body and then rebuilding it in three days, i.e. his resurrection. And that's all coming. But that hasn't happened yet. They don't know what that's about. And so they're just saying, save yourself. But in order to save others, he can't save himself. And so verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, so here's the ruling class, they're mocking him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Hopefully you hear the emphasis Mark is making here on this theme. He saved others, he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And so they mock him for the same reason, and they mock him for his supposed kingship. Those who were crucified with him, those two rebels, uh, they were also insulting him. And 
And Luke highlights specifically that one of the rebels was the one that was insulting him. The other one actually asked for his mercy. The point here in Mark's gospel is that the mocking and the ridicule comes from all sides, from the passersby, from those even being crucified with him, from the chief priests and the leaders, from all sides, Jesus is being mocked. And that really contributes to the picture of the shame and the degradation of the cross. Well, Jesus is hanging on the cross beginning at 9 in the morning. Verse 33 gives us another time reference, picking up at about noon. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 in the afternoon, the for whatever reason and in whatever way, the sky goes black and it gets dark here uh, right in the middle of the day. And so we need to picture Jesus hanging on the cross, laboring to breathe, slowly in agony, dying, and doing so in complete darkness. And then verse 34, at the ninth hour, that is about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is actually a, the opening line of Psalm 22, Psalm 22.1, which is a psalm about a, a righteous sufferer, somebody who is righteous, and yet he is he's being mocked and mistreated and suffering unjustly. And so here Jesus quotes this line, which suggests that he's been meditating on Psalm 22 while he's hanging here on the cross. It also being included here in Mark's gospel helps us see Jesus as he is not just a righteous sufferer. He is the ultimate righteous sufferer. He didn't deserve this. He's a righteous man who does not deserve what he's experiencing here on the cross. And so he cries out uh, in this agony of, God, why have you let this happen to me? I'm a righteous man and I don't deserve this. And the agony, both physical and emotional and spiritual. And so he cries out. Verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard him, they began saying, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed so they could get it up to him and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. And so they interpret Jesus' cry as he's calling for help. But, verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and he died. No rescue, no Elijah coming to help, no escape from the cross. He died. He died. And Mark goes on in verse 38 and tells us that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil in the temple most likely refers to the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place was the place that the high priest went into once a year on the Day of Atonement. And according to uh, one rabbinic text in the Mishnah, the veil was a hand breadth thick. That is about six to eight inches thick. It was about 60 feet high and about 30 feet wide. This is a massive curtain. Uh, and notice it was torn in two from top to bottom. The whole thing was torn in half. And so symbolically, the veil being torn symbolizes that atonement 
had been made once for all, as the book of Hebrews explains, and now the way into the most holy place has been opened for any who would come to Jesus. And when the centurion, verse 39, who was standing right in front of him, and so at the moment of Jesus' death, there's a centurion who's overseeing this crucifixion event. Uh, That centurion, and a centurion is a Roman military officer in charge of a hundred military men. And so he's standing there right in front of Jesus when Jesus gave out that cry and died. And when he saw that he died in this way, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And that phrase, son of God, has actually been at the heart of Mark's gospel, right? Right from the beginning. 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, throughout part one up to who do you say that I am, right? Where Peter says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, all throughout the first half of the gospel. That line, son of God, has been at the heart of it. And now, In this climactic moment, here's Jesus dying on a cross, and it doesn't negate that truth that he's the Son of God. It actually demonstrates it, and it demonstrates it so clearly that even a Roman centurion can see it. He can see that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Well, Mark wraps up the crucifixion scene in verse 40 and 41 with these words, Now, There were also some who were standing there, watching from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and uh, Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and serve him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so Mark just notes that there are, they're watching some of Jesus' followers, some of uh, those who know Jesus, and especially these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph. We know from John's gospel, Mary, his own mother, was there. Salome is there. And there are other women, Mark notes, who traveled with him, made the pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem for the feast. And there they are gathered at the foot of the cross where Jesus died. Now, before we leave this scene, let's just offer a few reflections. The first is this, the idea of Jesus as king. Mark wants us to know that. He wants us to know that indeed Jesus is the king. He's the king of the Jews and thus the king of the whole world. And this is the official reason he's executed. The charge says it. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the king of the Jews, and his crucifixion does not negate this. In fact, in a sense, this is Jesus' coronation day publicly heralded as king, and it shows how Jesus used his kingly power and authority, not to save himself, but to save others. He used his royal coronation to lay down his life for others. That's the kind of king he is. And so that's really the second reflection, is this idea of Saving others meant he couldn't save himself. And Mark wants us to know that. He highlights that multiple times through here. In fact, he highlights different groups even mocking him, basically calling on Jesus to save himself if he's the king. But he has a different kind of kingdom. And it's not about saving himself. It's actually about saving others. That's the way his kingdom works. Laying down your life for the sake of others. Jesus, as king, in this moment, is giving his life as a ransom for many, just as he said he would in Mark 10, 45.